This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. Thanks for attending this session on decision-making for localized early-stage prostate cancer. My name is Stan Rosenfeld, and I am a patient advocate for men with prostate cancer. In the previous presentation, you heard about treatment approaches, and you have heard about informed decision-making. Now we're going to talk more about deciding which option is best for you, with an emphasis on your personal preferences. Following my opening remarks, we will have a panel discussion on decision-making with time for your questions. And then tomorrow, during the Meet the Faculty session, I will go into more depth on patient preferences. What do I do now? The question that has been asked too many times to count. We're going to learn how to make individualized choices. There are pros and cons to treatment choices as there are in most things in life. And the pros and cons may be different for different people. Your doctors take a lot of factors into consideration, including cancer grade and volume. And here is the question that I, as a support group leader, hear over and over and over again. So why won't the doctor always tell me exactly what to do? The answer is that there's often more than one good choice. We will talk about how to choose a treatment when there are multiple choices with equivalent cancer control outcomes. So why won't my doctor tell me which choices to make? In essence, the doctor cannot get into your head and know your choices for this side effect or that side effect. Your concern about bowel problems or your desire to know the probable success of your treatment sooner rather than later, or your concern about erectile function or even temporary urinary incontinence. We can discuss these and more in the Meet the Faculty breakout session tomorrow. Men with advanced cancer have personal choices also on how aggressive they want to be for one. More on that tomorrow. So let me leave you with the knowledge that your doctor can tell you which treatment or treatments have the best outcome. You often have to be the one to choose which treatment to have. And do ask your doctor if you know all that needs to be taken into consideration. And now, our distinguished panel, doctors Peter Carroll, Matt Cooperberg, Felix Fang, Mac Roach and Eric Small. Matt? Uh, our first case, a 58-year-old African-American man referred to our practice for consideration of robot-assisted prostatectomy. He is in excellent overall health. He has very good quality of life going in, minimal voiding symptoms and good erections. And these numbers you will frequently see here in our records, these are the surveys that we ask you to do for us over and over again. These are means of quantifying and standardizing degrees of urinary obstruction and erection function respectively. Uh, his PSA is 4.2, which is high for his age, but low for the, high for his age um, across all men, but relatively low in the spectrum of men with prostate cancer. He's got an unremarkable DRE and Gleason grade group one in three out of 12 cores. So his CAPRA score is one, which is consistent with actually low risk disease. Uh, and this is, I would say this is becoming a little bit less of a common scenario today than it was five or 10 years ago, where we have men like this who are sent for treatment to UCSF and our job is to talk them out of it, at least initially, uh, but we do still see it occasionally. So after discussing the options, um, he appropriately uh, indicated a primary preference for active surveillance. So the question then becomes, are we good? Do we need to do anything else to, do, to verify that he is eligible for active surveillance? I think we alluded to some of these questions in the talks earlier, uh, but I would open it up for the rest of the panelists at this point. Do we need to do an MRI, a confirmatory biopsy, uh, genomic testing? I think we've already talked a little bit about the race ethnicity question with active surveillance. Um, what if you were BRCA positive? Any thoughts on any of these questions? Maybe we'll start with uh, Felix about genomic testing. All comers, just selected patients. Sure. And so, um, to be honest with you, I, I only, even though I'm a big proponent of genomic testing, the first thing I always do is I talk with my patients. If my patients have already made up their mind completely on what they want to do, which is perfectly fine, then there's no point in getting a test that isn't going to change the treatment decision. Okay. However, if I have a patient who's on the fence and I talk about, let's say, in this case, active surveillance versus some kind of definitive local therapy, 
um, and they want more information, then I would definitely order the genomic test. And in this particular context, a low-risk prostate cancer patient, actually a number of genomic tests are appropriate. Oncotype is appropriate, so is Polaris, so is Decipher. You know, and this is one setting in which all these tests actually uh, have been shown to, to, to provide some value, actually largely based on research from UCSF led by Matt and Peter and myself. Um, and so, uh, yes, I would consider a genomic test. And um, the other question that I can address here is what about BRCA status as well? And so, um, Matt, do you mind if I address that now? Oh, go ahead. I can comment on that too, but yeah, please go ahead. Please. Yeah, so BRCA status, you know, uh, can be obtained via testing of the tumor or testing of a patient's blood sample, meaning an, a germline or non-tumor sample. And what has been shown is that uh, the presence of a BRCA mutation is actually associated with more aggressive prostate cancer than in a patient, a similar patient who does not have a BRCA mutation. Um, and so in this context, uh, for my patients who uh, have a known BRCA mutation, um, I tend to uh, lean a little bit more towards treatment than uh, active surveillance on a BRCA patient. But I'm interested in what everyone else has to say as well. So that's a really important point. And this comes up more and more. Um, and first of all, just to clarify again, I know we've alluded to this before, germline testing refers to testing blood or saliva to test the DNA that you're born with. Genomic testing, tumor genomics, we're usually looking at the genes in the cancer itself. Um, and we're doing more and more genetic testing, germline testing for broader you know, subsets of men with prostate cancer going forward. The question about active surveillance outcomes for men with BRCA mutations has really only been looked at in a couple of cohorts so far. Johns Hopkins reported a series um, just last year showing higher rates of progression or reclassification to higher grade disease for men with these mutations than men who did not have the mutations. However, you know, so, the, so the rate was about 50% of the men who had a mutation by six years had higher grade disease and needed to go on to treatment. I think the question though becomes at this point, does this man need treatment today? And that's, you know, that's not the same question as will he need treatment ever? And I think you know, for those of us that are strong advocates for early PSA testing for young men, we can really only advocate for early testing if we're willing to do active surveillance for most men with low-risk disease. So a man like this, you know, if he had a BRCA mutation, which he did not, you know, I tend to still put active surveillance on the table, understanding that he is more likely to need treatment at some point. But I would much rather have surgery or radiation therapy at 63 than 53, and I'd rather have it in 2021 than 2011. You know, science gets better, treatments get better, um, and he buys a window free of any sort of risks of, of uh, treatments in the meantime. Matt, I agree. Active surveillance is still certainly on the table, but I would just say that, um, you know, for this particular gentleman, if he was on, if he were on the fence between active surveillance and treatment, a positive BRCA status would push me towards treatment. If he wants active surveillance, that's perfectly fine. But um, in general, for this patient, if they did not have a BRCA mutation, I would be pushing towards active surveillance anyway. Yeah, very so can I ask uh, Felix a question then? I mean, suppose you did a genomic test and the genomic test was favorable. Would you still do the BRCA? Um, you know, well, not, you not necessarily in the sense that uh, my, my decision to do a BRCA test is largely based on, uh, let's say, family history and age. So this is a patient that's a little bit younger. But, you know, uh, what I tend to look for is multiple family members with cancers at younger ages or a strong family history of prostate cancer uh, uh, diagnosed at younger ages or breast cancer as well. Um, you know, in, in general, uh, what I'll do is for my patients who are uh, in their 40s and 50s, I will counsel them about the possibility of obtaining a genetic test. But I, again, I leave that up to the patient. Some patients actually don't want to know if they have a BRCA mutation or they don't, you know, um, some patients definitely do in the sense that it potentially has implication for family members uh, and testing of family members. And so again, it's a personal decision. I tend to worry a little bit more about the fact that maybe there's a sampling biopsy issue. I, I, I somehow missed the, the data on how many biopsies that were taken and how many were positive and, and where the biopsies were done in terms of you know, like sometimes you'll see a patient, they only had, you know, six cores versus, you know, 12 cores or, you know, um, so, you know, um, so I agree that I usually use genomic test 
if I'm trying to talk a patient into active surveillance and the patient wants to be treated, then I use that genomic test to say, see, I told you, you don't need to be treated. But if the patient came in the door, and I think this is what you're implying, Felix, saying that I'm thinking about active surveillance, I would yes, say, yes, you look like you're a good active surveillance patient. Speaking of good quality in terms of the biopsy, you know, the question about MRI and confirmatory biopsy, you know, Dr. Carroll's talk alluded to this and, and so did I earlier. Um, any thoughts on this from anyone? Do we need to do an MRI on everybody before we set them on the path of surveillance? You know, it dep- I mean, this is where it, it makes a difference to know who did the biopsy. I've, yeah. I mean, some people use the uh, ultrasound to make sure the needle is in the prostate. And other people actually look at the ultrasound and, and direct the needle at places that look suspicious. And so this is where it's important to know what you're dealing with. That's actually a perfect segue for the next, the next bit. But, but absolutely, who did the initial biopsy is, it, is definitely a part of the consideration for us. It is not at all rare that we see patients referred in with what looks like low-grade disease. And on initial either MRI or ultrasound, we see clear lesions that were missed on the original. Um, so if the patient was not diagnosed here, we usually do favor an early confirmatory MRI and biopsy unless the MRI is, is completely reassuring. Uh, so this patient did opt for active surveillance. He really pushed back pretty hard about whether to undergo this confirmatory biopsy. So we initially followed his PSA, which drifted up slowly um, over the first few checks here. By 12 months, the PSA was up to 4.5, and now he agreed to undergo an MRI-directed uh, fusion biopsy. So exactly to Dr. Rocha's point. Um, So this is the MRI here. Uh, This is the T2-weighted exam, which gives us a look at the anatomy. This is diffusion weighting, um, which is less anatomic because the resolution is not as good, but it gives us an indication of cellular density. Um, Darker areas on diffusion weighting and T2 tend to be uh, the areas of, of tumor. We also do what's called a dynamic contrast exam, which looks at how quickly the tumor relative to normal tissue takes up the IV contrast that's given during the MR. There was not much to see in that regard here. So overall, this was called a PIRADS-4. Again, that's on, this, on that scale of one to five. Um, and the MRI staged it as a T2, meaning confined to the prostate. Now, the ultrasound, which I did subsequently, actually shows this lesion just as clearly on the ultrasound as it did on the MR. And in fact, on ultrasound, this is subtle, but there was a little bit of distortion of the capsule right here, uh, which I thought was suspicious for possible extracapsular disease. Um, and we actually called that, and we meaning you know we estimate about a 20% possibility of that uh, not seen on the MR. So with this uh, information, we did a targeted biopsy, paying particular attention to this area here. And absolutely, ultrasound should be a way of finding the tumor, not just finding the prostate. So on this repeat biopsy, uh, we now found Gleason grade group two, so three plus four. In both the targeted biopsies we did based on the MR and an additional targeted biopsy I did based on the ultrasound. Um, and now there is 30% pattern four. Again, three plus four could be anywhere from five to 49% pattern four. So it's 30% pattern four. And we saw the pathologist called a, a cribriform histology, which is one of the intermediate aggressiveness subtypes within the different subtypes of pattern four. Um, and we found a little bit of low-grade disease in the other systematic cores as well. Now, this stresses the point that all three plus fours are not treated equal. And this gets to Eric's question to me earlier, which patients with three plus four disease are eligible for active surveillance and which are not. This is just a look at two other patients I've seen in the last couple of years. Um, uh, And we can can review all the details here, but the patient on the left um, who has a relatively low PSA for his age, non-palpable tumor, three plus four and only 10% of one core out of 12, 10% 10% of the cancer being pattern four. Um, he is very different biologically than somebody who is younger with a higher PSA, particularly for his age, a palpable tumor, uh, three plus four in more of the cores and more of the cancer being pattern four. Um, and yet both of these patients are going to qualify as favorable intermediate in the NCCN risk classification, uh, which is why we do need to get more granular um, as, uh, as Felix showed earlier with a system like CAPRA, or there's a number of nomograms that will do this as well. And we can get additional information at the point of care without even getting into genomics with things like PSA density, which relates the PSA to the size of the prostate. Um, A man with a lot of BPH will have a higher PSA. 
So the PSA density accounts for that by looking at PSA divided by the volume of the prostate. Um, and we can also look at these subtypes, the different patterns that the pathologists see under the microscope. Uh, so this gentleman was still on the fence about treatment versus surveillance. So we did go ahead and get a genomic test. He had a decipher score, which came back at 0.62 on this scale from zero to one, which just gets him into the high end of the risk spectrum. Uh, now I wanna make a point about the genomics here. These are continuous scores. Um, and you know they tend to get classified into these low intermediate buckets. Uh, but those buckets can occasionally be misleading. And, you know, there's a lot of science that goes into the markers. We had a lot, we've had a lot of questions in the chat about, you know, which marker is better and which test is better and all that. I would argue the science behind Decipher Oncotype and Prolaris is all quite similar in terms of how well they do as prognostic markers. However, there is actually remarkably little science that goes into how the reports are formatted and what is actually you know, handed to the patient or the physician. And it's a huge, you know, everybody on the panel is smiling because I think we all recognize what an issue this is. Um, because the, you know, at the end of the day, we do all these scientific validation studies for the company. And then the marketing company, marketing division runs a couple of focus groups to figure out what to actually put on the paper. And we wind up with some real problems. So just as an example here, this is the oncotype. I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to beat up an oncotype, but um, there, there were two patients I saw last year who came in with oncotype scores. Um, and the patient on the right here was 69. He had a, a small volume three plus four tumor, only one out of eight cores, relatively low PSA. Capra score was two. And if we actually ran the model that Felix showed earlier, where we integrate, sorry, Peter's talk showed earlier, where we integrate the oncotype score with the clinical information, we get a 30% likelihood of adverse pathology. Uh, and yet the report calls him unfavorable intermediate because of this sort of non-validated, um, you know, rejiggering of the statistics that, that they did. Um, whereas this guy on the left here, who has higher volume disease, higher PSA, higher CAPRA score, and a higher GPS score, somehow comes out at low risk. Again, just because of the way the, the statistics are done, you know, behind the scenes in generating these papers. So, you know, the, the GPS is a, is a good test on a scale of one to 100, but these sorts of, you know, low versus, you know, and the GPS plus NCCN, NCCN thing is much less well validated. Um, and at the end of the day, hey, Matt, I just want to jump yeah, in and say, please, you please. know, when these genomic tests came out, uh, because, because, you know, our team at UCSF had led a number of them, as you remember, we started getting referrals uh, or self-referrals from patients yeah. who would just walk in with one of these tests and say, tell me what it means, right? And so, you know, I'm a radiation oncologist. I, I started seeing a lot of patients who were never going to get radiation, which is perfectly fine for the sole purpose of going over these test reports, which I, I agree with you are, are are not well thought out sometimes, the, 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 the way the reports come out. But information is very useful, but you have to know how to interpret it. Well, and then and from a decision-making standpoint, to go, back to, to go back to Stan's comments at the beginning, you know, this is all about trying to help people make better decisions, right? And we recognize fully that we throw tons of numbers at men diagnosed with prostate cancer. We throw CAPRA scores and PIRAD scores and Gleason grade groups. It's, we, there's literally like four different one to five scales that people need to hold in their heads as we go through these conversations. So now we throw a genomic score too. You know, does that really help drive better decision-making? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but we really need to be very clear that these are not pregnancy tests. You know, it's not a situation where it turns blue and therefore we take out the prostate and if it doesn't, you're fine. Um, you know, these are shades of gray and the tests help us determine a lighter versus darker shade of gray. Um, but it is shades of gray and there's always room for decision-making in one direction or another, depending on individual men's preferences for, you know, risks of risk aversion for treatment versus risk aversion for the cancer progressing. Sorry, Matt, you were going to say something? I was just going to say, and then what to do about the test, how to use the test to manage the patient. Some of these tests will tell you this suggests you have a 10% chance of having metastatic yeah. disease at this point, but it doesn't tell you how to prevent that from happening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, so that's one of the downsides, I think, with the decipher test is that it does put those numbers out there. And those specific numbers come from, you know, cases treated surgically at Cleveland Clinic, you know, decades ago, because it takes that long to get those numbers. Those numbers almost certainly overestimate the risk of a man diagnosed today. And I think they cause a lot of anxiety. And uh, the older version of the Prolaris test did the same thing. So, you know, they're great for relative risk. They'll tell us who's got a worse tumor versus not such a bad tumor. But I, I take those specific predictions about outcomes with several giant lumps of salt. 
Yeah, you know, and Matt, you know, I also wanted to take this uh, opportunity to, to really reinforce what Stan said in the sense that, um, you know, Stan's, Stan's point is that, you know, um, we as physicians need to understand the preferences of our patients, you know, and um, and I think that's very important in the sense that, you know, at least my practice, and I know yours as well, is to try to figure out um, whether the patient, let's say, is a glass is half full or glass is half empty type of guy, because that's actually going to affect how they proceed with the decision and so forth. And I think the example I want to make is that my wife is a radiation oncologist as well. Mac knows her and Eric, you all know her and arguably you all like her more than you like me, which is perfectly fine. That's not arguable. uh, You know, but she treats pancreatic cancer and liver cancer, and these are horrible cancers. And literally there's really one decision, you know, to be made, which is just, you know, not if you want therapy or no therapy, but how much therapy can we get in uh, for these aggressive tumors? Whereas for prostate cancer, the decision is more nuanced because for many of these patients, they don't they either don't need treatment or there are so many different ways to cure a patient that it ends up that the personal preference is quite important. And there's even variations in terms of people's decision control preferences. In other words, um, you know, there are people that are really looking for guidance in terms of what to do. There's other patients. I had a patient in my clinic yesterday who at the very outset when I first met him said, listen, I can tell you right now, I want opinions from doctors, but I can make my own decisions in life. And that's absolutely fine, right? I mean, people have very different goals in terms of what they're looking for from these counseling sessions. And we, we try to meet people where they are um, as much as possible. So just to summarize all the numbers we've been talking about here. So this is a, a grade group two tumor, three plus four. We've now got a few targeted cores positive, cribriform pattern, a um, little bit of about 30% pattern four, and this decipher score kind of getting into the higher risk range. So what do we do? Is he still eligible for surveillance? Should he get surgery? If he gets radiation, which type? Um, is he eligible for focal treatment? Any thoughts? What type of radiation should he get, first of all, if he's going for the radiation approach? Uh, Mac, you want to go first here? Go ahead. No, I defer to you. I, I like to answer after you. <laughs> well, Wise man. I mean, you could do you could do any of these. I mean, they're all they all you know brachytherapy. We did a randomized trial in patients with with intermediate risk disease to see whether they needed external beam radiation. If you do good implants, you could do a good implant on him. Um, you could do. Um, HDR, so you can do a permanent implant, temporary implant, SBRT, IMRT. You could also consider the issue of adding hormone therapy. I mean, Felix has talked about decipher, and it just depends on where you cut the point off to say this is unfavorable versus favorable. His pattern looks like a favorable intermediate, but his decipher score is a little bit high, but it's not off the chart high. So I, I would, so he's, this is a patient, but he is young. And uh, so uh, I think all of these options, other than I'm not a big fan of focal therapy and a 50-something-year-old man who's, you know, got prostate cancer that can kill him, and there's very little long-term quality data with cryo and HIFU that tells you what the cure rate is or what what PSA you're going to use to monitor them, at least with prostatectomy and and radiation and active surveillance, I feel more comfortable following the patient once I've made that decision. I wouldn't recommend active surveillance, though, in, uh, in this young African-American patient. You know, it's a really important point about focal therapy. Focal therapy and, you know, focal therapy is done very variably around the world. It's done very poorly in many centers and, you know, too liberally in some places. Uh, we are very clear that, that focal therapy is more of an augmented surveillance approach than it is a clear replacement for surgery and radiation in that patients need surveillance after focal therapy. They've got to be committed to the post-focal biopsy to make sure the cancer is gone. Um, and and we're gonna, we need to watch them. PSA is not that reliable after focal treatment. So, you know, it's gonna be much more of an involved follow-up afterward than it would be after surgery or radiation. This patient would sort of barely meet our criteria for focal therapy here. Although I would be concerned about the decipher, I would also be concerned about this possible extracapsular um, extension. Um, I agree he would not be a great surveillance candidate. If he were hell-bent on it, I would not say no, but this would be definitely a patient I would tell it's a question of when, not if we need to do something, and when is probably not that far down the road. Um, And of course, he would be a candidate for surgery as well. Um, Ultimately, he did go to surgery where we confirmed T3 disease, so I think it was a good decision for him. But it's it's a case that we see, I think this, this type of case we see quite frequently. 
So Matt, can I yeah. can I say something real quick? Yeah, please. Of course, uh, of course. Uh, so I, I, just as surveillance is, is not an, an option, I think androgen deprivation therapy by itself is yes. also not an option. Um, it, it used to be we saw a whole lot more of ADT, lifelong ADT as an alternative to definitive local therapy. Um, and I think that's a bad strategy because as we'll talk about tomorrow, eventually ADT stops working. And so patients would develop androgen deprivation therapy resistant prostate cancer, and then it's still growing and you've got the same problems. So as an adjunct to radiation, certainly if it was decided that it was high enough risk, but as monotherapy, I would not uh, recommend it. The only times we would do that is if you know, there's a real medical contraindication to surgery or radiation. I'm glad you brought that up. I actually did not even list it as an option because we've we've thought of it as a as not a good strategy for so many years. But you're absolutely right. And when we look at these national data sets, we still see hormonal therapy by itself used for localized disease quite frequently around the country. Um, and there's actually pretty good studies that it it really does not improve survival over active surveillance or watchful waiting when it's used alone. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a great point. All right. Any other comments on this case? Otherwise, let's talk about our second one. So our second patient is older, 74. He's in relatively good health for his age, Caucasian gentleman. Um, he has a Gleason grade group three, so a Gleason four plus three in low volume, two out of 12 cores. There is a clearly visible lesion on MR. It was staged as a T2B, meaning it was involving more than half of one half of the prostate, one lobe. His PSA is higher at 14.8. Um, he is in the high risk range by Capra, uh, Capra six out of 10. And his quality of life is quite different from the first patient as well. He's got an IPSS score of 27 out of 35, despite Flomax, despite Tamsulosin. So this puts him into the sort of the severe obstructive voiding symptom category. And this is similar to the patient who I, I there was some chat in the Q&A uh, during Dr. Roach's talk about, you know, what to do in the, in the setting of relatively severe BPH. So we'll be talking about that in a minute. Um, his sexual function is kind of marginal. Um, he takes Viagra with, with um, intermittent, you know, um, somewhat an unpredictable response to it. So first question, does he need further imaging here? And if he does, what should he get? Bone scan, CT, MRI, PSMA PET? He already has an MR. Axiom and PET would be the other possibility here. Felix? You know, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Matt, your question is about imaging. You know, he is not uh, high risk by uh, conventional clinical criteria. Um, he is high risk by Capra. And so, you, you know, uh, I think the standard workup includes a CT scan and bone scan for patients with traditionally high risk prostate cancer. Um, he would be on the cusp of that. I don't think a bone scan is necessarily mandated for him, uh, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be incorrect either. Um, in terms of, let's say, PET scanning approaches, uh, Axman PET is um, not approved uh, in the upfront staging. Uh, it's really for kind of uh, patients who have recurrences. Now, PSMA PET, if we wait a year or so, it actually might be approved for this particular patient. Um, and so um, right now, uh, thanks to work for, by Don, Tom Hope and, um, and our UCSF team, uh, you know, PSMA PET was just FDA approved. We know it's much more sensitive for detection of prostate cancer. Um, it looks like guideline recommendations by some of the national societies will include this particular uh, 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 group of patients, intermediate risk prostate cancer. We can debate whether that that those guidelines are, um, are, are, are informed or not, but nevertheless, I think that that's what the guidelines will recommend. Um, but at this point in time, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like he has to have any imaging. The, the Capra six, you know, um, uh, could steer, could push me towards this. But you know, I mean, honestly, I'd be fine without any further imaging per se. Anybody so feel different? I, I would. You know, this is a patient where the history can be very important because if this man had a low IPSS mm -hmm. before and has gotten recently worse. And that MRI, the T2B, makes me a little nervous. I want to see the MRI because if his obstructive symptoms are from tumor, then I'm more 
interested in thinking about treating him with radiation, even though he has a high IPSS, if it's due to tumor, then I like to treat him with radiation, but I'd give him hormone therapy and radiate him and expect his urinary symptoms to get better. If his urinary symptoms are from BPH and not from tumor, then my enthusiasm for radiation is a bit lower. And I don't have, I apologize, no, I have a picture for this one, but it was about a 60 gram prostate and the T2B was largely peripheral zone. So uh, mid gland to base um, at the capsule, but not through it, but not in the transition zone and pinching on the urethra. Um, so Dr. Carroll's not here, so I will, I'll take the prostatectomy piece of it. I would say this is definitely a gentleman we would do a lymph node dissection as part of surgery. And he's someone that we would counsel, you know, there is a fair possibility of finding positive lymph nodes or that his PSA will rise after surgery and he will need additional treatment, uh, which you know we consider quite appropriate for these higher risk tumors. Now, so I, I just radiation. want to jump in here as yeah, well. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, you know, and, and as a radiation oncologist, I, I will say, and again, I agree with Mac, um, but you know, if this is a, a, a patient who has really bad urinary symptoms and it's not due to tumor, it's just, you know, over the course, he's had, you know, over the last four or five years, just progressively, increasing um, urinary symptoms, he's getting up three to four times a night. You know, these patients are probably better served with surgery uh, over radiation because uh, as you know, these urinary symptoms, if they're chronic over time, uh, are due to, you know, BPH type symptoms where you have the prostate pinching down on the urethra and so forth. And the really, the only way to really relieve those symptoms is actually to remove that obstruction, which can occur by a surgery. And so, um, you know, if, if they have really high IPSS scores, which is those urinary, urinary irritative scores that you mentioned previously, and that that's one of those cases where I'll start leaning towards surgery, especially um, in a patient who has a lot of, who's bothered by those symptoms quite a bit. So let's take that off the picture for a minute. Let's say his IPSS was were six rather than twenty seven, uh, and he were interested in in radiation as his primary treatment. Um, should he be hypofractionated? Uh, does he need a boost? How what's what's a contemporary approach to high risk radiation look like? And I, and I would ask you guys as you respond to that, do it in lay terms. Yeah. Not yeah. 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 I see if you can explain that term. <laughs> So, so I used to implant, you know, these patients. I, you know, I've done over fifteen hundred permanent implants, and um, but uh, now I've moved more towards stereotactic body radiotherapy, in part because of, it's more convenient for me. <laughs> it's more convenient for the patient, and I don't have to uh, do. They don't need anesthesia. They don't have the trauma. Uh, the problem, and I do, I only did LDR. LDR stands for low dose rate of brachytherapy as opposed to HDR. And the problem with LDR is that, you know, you, 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 what you see is what you get. Uh, for those of you who remember such a song, uh, you know, the bottom line is that you put the seeds in. If it's not perfect, it's never going to be perfect. And these patients can have focal recurrences. The other thing is that um, I had a patient who uh, happened to have a Geiger counter at home and came back to me and said, Dr. Roach, how come I have a seed in my heart? You know, so these seeds can get into the veins and they can go to the heart, they can go to the lung, even though we use stranded material when we can minimize that, uh, 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 the trauma and the bleeding and the anesthesia and uh, the results with SBRT seem to be very similar to HDR, the high dose rate uh, temporary implant, and uh, they don't require the anesthesia. So I've, my personal bias is, is that way. So the key decision for me is whether this patient is a favorable intermediate risk or an unfavorable. If I think they're favorable, I just radiate the prostate with SBRT. If they're unfavorable, then I may, if they're sort of borderline, sometimes I'll just radiate the prostate and give them four months of hormone therapy. But if they have more aggressive disease, I tend to give them hormones, radiate the pelvic lymph nodes, and then do SBRT or do SBRT and radiate the pelvis. And what, about the question? what about this question of hypofractionation? So what, what, you know, meaning giving the radiation therapy over so three weeks, so if you look at the folks from the UK, they did a study called the CHIP trial where they hypofractionated, they gave people over, over um, they gave, you know, 20 fractions and they get, you know, the 6,000. I think that's a waste of time. I mean, they, they claim that this is a new standard for external beam radiation. Well, why do I want to go to 20 treatments if I could do four? 
I mean, they only radiated the prostate. How is that a big breakthrough? I mean, we used to use 40, and now we can do four. These people use 20. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't see the point. So, 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 Matt, I think my approach is that there are many different ways to cure this particular patient. Um, I, I, I think that any of these radiation approaches are reasonable. I, I agree with Mac that I don't favor the LDR, which is the permanent brachytherapy anymore, just because um, of the issues he described. Uh, and, and Mac is probably somebody who's done more LDR brachytherapy implants than anybody else in the country. So um, I, I think, you know, his perspective there is, is quite reasonable. I would favor, you know, a HDR brachytherapy implant um, or the SBRT, which is like the CyberKnife type plan. Um, my SBRT approach is a little bit different from Max. I use five treatments, he uses four. Um, and in this particular patient, uh, given his tumor features, I think that I would recommend short course hormone therapy as well. So our summary on him again. So 74-year-old, he had four plus three, low volume, T2B, PSA just under 15. He did ultimately go for prostatectomy um, in, in part given his obstructive voiding symptoms. Pathology confirmed a three plus four. It was 40% pattern four cribriform, so middle of the road in terms of aggressiveness on histology. He did have focal extracapsular disease. And it's important to stress there, there are big differences between having a few cells outside the margin as opposed to a tumor, which is, you know, half an inch beyond the capsule um, extending, you know, from the apex all the way to the base. Uh, 17 lymph nodes were all negative. He did have a focal positive margin. And again, here, as with the extra capsular disease, the devil's in the details. There's a big difference between this situation, which was a small, you know, very short length of low-grade tumor in an area where we're using a lot of heat cautery during the surgery. Uh, versus having a large higher grade margin near the base. Um, and in fact, uh, when he came for his two month visit, his PSA was undetectable. Uh, he was nearly but not quite continent at this point. And based on the extra capsular disease, we did order a genomic test, which we're doing fairly routinely if there is any sign of adverse pathology, even if the PSA is, is initially undetectable. So he had a decipher test actually similar to the first patient's. Uh, 0.67. So again, at the low end of the high risk band here. Um, again, I don't put a whole lot of stock in these specific numbers here, uh, but it does put him into a range where I think we would take seriously any subsequent PSA rise. And that's the way I'm, I'm thinking about these, these types of patients. Now we do get this grid report. There was a question in the chat Matt, earlier. Matt, about, wait, wait, yeah, please. About please, please. So I want to ask Mac and Felix a question. So he's got a high risk and we could make it clearer by making it even higher, but he's got a high risk score. Um, he's got, we haven't said anything about the margins, but, but you know, this focal little bitzel. Is this someone that you would say, boy, this guy's at, at such high risk that we should think about adjunctive radiation therapy now? And, and what score or what scenario would change your mind about that? Because we haven't, during the set, I realized that during the talks today, we didn't really talk about adjuvant radiotherapy. So I'm, I'm going to come to, actually, give me, give me one second. Give me one second. Um, okay. So that's actually, so, so the one complicating question there is we also have on the, on the grid report. So this is some of, this is why we are, we are particular fans of Decipher over the other genomic tests is that in addition to the Decipher score, we get all these other scores um, and predictions for response to different treatments. Now these all have, varying degrees of validation. Uh, but I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Feng, who developed and published this PORTO score on post-op radiation, uh, just to comment on you know, what this is and how we interpret it. Yeah, so we, we developed the score a number of years ago. And you know, just to be clear, I, I have no financial interest in Decipher. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we published this and they put it on their platform. But uh, nevertheless, this score basically indicates the likelihood uh, in a patient who's had surgery uh, of response to uh, the radiation after the surgery. And it basically gives you a number from zero to 100. If you're 100, it means you're going to, uh, you're, you're the most likely person in a random population of 100 patients who to, to have a very good response to the radiation. If you're zero, it means that the other 99 patients are going to have a better response to radiation than you. And uh, we developed it and validated it, and actually, it's there's unpublished data that's going to continue to validate. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't 
if a patient doesn't respond well to radiation, there could be one of two reasons here. Reason number one is that the cancer has already metastasized and therefore radiating the prostate area doesn't help out. Uh, reason number two is that, well, there's something biologically about that cancer that's just resistant to the radiation itself. We don't quite know, right? Because we never, when, when, when our treatments don't work, we don't, ne we don't necessarily know why and you know where that cancer was because if we couldn't see cancer to begin with, we still can't see it after the treatment. Um, but in general, uh, I also counsel my patients that, again, this guy has an undetectable PSA, but if a patient has surgery and the PSA comes back, there's only one curative approach for that patient. And that curative approach inv involves radiation. And so in general, um, uh, you know, a, a Porto score, the post-op radiation response score, um, uh, you know, leads me to um, recommend against radiation only in a very small percentage of patients because, you know, if a patient only has a 5% chance of cure with radiation, well, 5% isn't very much, but without the radiation, they have a 0% chance of cure. And so, you know, that's the way I approach things. But I also, you know, if my patient says, listen, I don't want radiation, you know, and the Porta score doesn't look good, that's fine as well. So in, in point of fact, this, this patient's uh, PSA did rise subsequently. So by six months, he had totally recovered his continence, but his PSA is now 0 0.18, still a little bit below what we technically define the threshold as 0.2, but clearly rising. Um, so what do we do now? We have three large trials reported last year that argued that there's no benefit for adjuvant versus early salvage radiation therapy, but he is nearly at that threshold already. Define adjuvant versus early. Yes, sorry. So, so getting to, so to Eric's question earlier, you know, adjuvant means we radiate just based on what's on the pathology report. So just based on um, having extracapsular disease, having positive margins, cancer in the seminal vesicles, for example, that is enough to justify radiation therapy, even if the PSA is zero. That is adjuvant radiation. And it was supported by a number of trials started in the 80s and 90s, uh, reported out about 10 years ago, showing that doing that, radiating immediately based on the pathology report, was better than waiting many, many years until the cancer was very advanced or not radiating ever. Uh, but as time went on and we used more and more sensitive PSA tests after surgery and followed patients more carefully after surgery, the question arose, you know, is adjuvant radiation in the setting of a zero PSA better than early salvage radiation, meaning not waiting until the PSA is 20 and there's, and there's you know, pending bone mets, uh, but radiating when the PSA is low, but detectable. So there were three trials that all were reported out and published last year, all of which showed admittedly in patients who had relatively sort of intermediate risk cancer, not particularly high risk cancer, that we did just as well when we waited until the PSA got to 0.2 as if we treated when the PSA was still undetectable. Uh, they're not without controversy, although all three did sort of show the same, the same thing. And I think this patient here is exactly the, you know, now we're on the, on the cusp of this new evidence trying to figure out what to do. And, um, you know, is he somebody, and let's say the PSA was even a little bit lower. Let's say it was 0.12. You know, do we wait until it gets to 0.2? Should we radiate early because he's got a high decipher? Should we not radiate early because he's got a low portos? Or, you know, the additional wrinkle here now is do we wait? We're going to talk more tomorrow about PSMA PET, but the sensitivity of PSMA PET really doesn't come in until the PSA gets to about 0.2. So do we wait until the PSA is high enough to show us something on the PSMA scan? What do we so, so for argument's sake, let's hold off on the PSMA PET. Let's say Fine. it's not available. Fine. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say under those circumstances, Felix and Mac. You said, I'm sorry, hold off on the PSMA, you said? Yeah, for now, because we'll, we'll be discussing that tomorrow. Let's say it's not available for whatever the reason. Okay, fine. Mac, you want to go first? Or you're, you're muted, Mac. Uh, Mac, you're muted. You want to go? I think you want to go. Um, yeah, yeah, and generally PSMA PET is not available. So I think that's a really good assumption because even though we can do it at UC, there's a long wait and it's expensive. It's not covered by insurance, blah, 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 blah. So, and uh, I, I actually, uh, I'm, I'm still going to touch on this a little bit tomorrow when I talk about management of recurrences, but I don't, I believe that those three studies, the raves, radicals, and artistic, you know, those studies don't really prove what people wanted those things to prove, to answer the question of adjuvant versus salvage. Because, and, and, and you know, it's a, 
There are a lot of details in it, but the bottom line is the patients were too favorable. And even this, it, the criteria for doing radiation was a rising PSA, even if it was less than 0.2. So if you had ultra sensitive, you could, you could radiate a patient if the PSA was going up. Um, and so, but basically the, the shortest version of that is they created what I, they, 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 uh, they, ha they uh, had three sins of, of, of treatment. Number one, you can't prove something doesn't work by treating people who don't need it. And that's what those studies did because they allowed people to go on the study if they had a pre-op PSA greater than 10, even if they had no adverse pathologic features. Number two, you can't prove something doesn't work if you don't do it properly. If you're talking about truly high-risk patients post-op, they need hormone therapy, they need pelvic radiation, they need image guides, they didn't do any of that stuff. And number three, you can't prove something doesn't work with an underpowered study. Two of the studies were stopped by the Data Safety Monitoring Committee because they weren't, because they weren't designed properly. They said, your, your, your event rate is too low, close the study now. And the other study was like the other ones, but the Data Safety Monitoring Committee didn't stop the study because they were connected to another study. So, 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 so Mac, would you radiate this patient now or not? No. Oh, yeah, yes, with the PSA. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do adjuvant. I wouldn't have done adjuvant, but I would radiate the patient now for sure. Yeah, I would as well. Yeah. So neither of you would have radiated with the, if, if the PSA had remained zero. No, because he, his continence was still improving and, you, and his, he may have never recurred, okay? And he didn't have, if he had seminal vesicle involvement, if yeah. he had negative margins and a PSA that was detectable using an ultra-sensitive assay and his Gleason score was nine or something like that, I would have thought about it. What about you, yeah, Felix? Say, yeah. say, his, say at two months, he's, he's continent, his PSA is undetectable, but he has, he has seminal vesicle invasion in a you know, grade group four or five adjuvant. Yeah, well, I mean, this patient's 74 years old. So what I would do is I would sit down and look at, in all honesty, I would try to figure out life expectancy uh, mm -hmm. for this particular patient. And in general, the longer I project the patient's going to live, the more option, the, the more aggressive I, I would think about being. And so this person was 58 and had all these horrible features and I had a high decipher score. Even at an undetectable PSA, I would offer uh, him adjuvant radiation. I wouldn't push it upon him, but I would definitely offer it. Um, you know, but if somebody's 74, you know, and, and they've got a lot of other medical issues, you know, I don't feel as strongly. Great. Great. Good discussions. All right. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you all very, very much. Uh, it was really great. And um, we have some questions come in that some of you answered um, online, but um, I believe that, um, the patients in general would like to hear um, some of the answers. Um, one of them is um, now that HIFU is available at UCSF, what discussions are you going to have with patients, uh, specific discussions on active surveillance versus HIFU? Yeah, great question. Um, and, you know, as I alluded to before, we've been very careful about relaunching HIFU. HIFU for many years was kind of a four letter word at UCSF because we had experience with the early generations of the machine that did not allow nearly as much uh, control and guidance during the ablation procedure. And because it was used so badly all over California and all over the country and the world. Um, and we've seen a lot of men who were, who were badly harmed by poorly done ablative therapy. You know, I, I had one just last week where we had to take out the prostate, not because the cancer came back, but because the entire urethra was destroyed by, by poorly done HIFU. So, you know, there's a perception out there that it's minimally invasive or less invasive, what have you. You know, you have to be very, very careful about marketing in prostate cancer care. And that is true across the board. That's true if we're talking about robotic surgery, proton therapy, HIFU, ablation, whatever it is. People are always, you know, there are many, many, not even unscrupulous, but many people are selling their treatments far too hard. And we say, and anybody that tells you that it's guaranteed free of side effects, you should turn and walk out, and run as fast as you can to a high volume center and seek care there. Um, so having, having said all that, uh, HIFU at UCSF, we are launching and we're excited about it, but it really should not be an active surveillance or HIFU discussion. Surveillance candidates by and large should be on surveillance. And one of our concerns is we do not want to see men who don't need treatment getting treated with HIFU. Uh, because it is still over treatment. 
there are still risks, there's still cost, there's still, you know, nothing is free of side effects. Um, and men with sort of straightforward low risk disease uh, really should remain on, on surveillance. So I think that the ideal candidate are the men who are borderline for surveillance, meaning they've got some three plus four. Um, they've got a visible lesion. Um, it's somebody who, again, the question is when, not if they need treatment, and they're really trying to avoid surgery and radiation therapy. These are the men who are probably good candidates, but I will say out of 80, uh, we have about 80 men who have gotten focal cryotherapy over the last 10-ish years at UCSF. And there are two or three of those men who ultimately got metastatic disease after ablation. Now, that's not to say that we would have avoided that by doing surgery or radiation therapy, um, but we do need to be careful. You know, these, these intermediate risk cancers, some of them do have biologic potential to be aggressive. Um, and we need to be very careful about monitoring after focal therapy, even more so than after surgery and radiation. Matt, thank you so much. We have a couple more minutes. We have Dr. June Chan who needs to come on. Two quick questions. I'll give them to you at the same time and then you can answer them. One is when, if ever, should, even though UCSF has read the slides, given Gleason grades, should it ever be sent somewhere else? And the other question is in all the algorithms for deciding what to do and what the stage of disease is, should the phi score, PHI score ever be considered? So the phi is a pre-diagnostic test. Um, it's in the same category as 4K and select MBX that we talked about earlier. It's free PSA plus uh, something called minus two pro PSA. It's a different PSA uh, isoform subtype of PSA. So we have never we haven't used it much at UCSF just because it's you know the presentation of it is not as good as the 4K score in my opinion, which is which is very similar. Uh, but it's certainly out there, and there are centers that use it uh, fairly commonly as another test for men who have an elevated PSA trying to decide whether or not to get treated. Uh, the other question was about pathology review. I, it never hurts to get additional opinions. I mean, even, you know, so UCSF pathology, you know, I should say, you know, even the UCSF pathologist, every pathology is an art in many of these cases, more than a hard science, same as the radiology. There was a question earlier about pathology disagreement. Uh, we're part of a consortium uh, called the Canary Study with nine other major centers across North America. And there is a really good GU prostate focused pathologist at every center who's been doing nothing but reading prostate cancer cases for the last 25 plus years. And they have been trading cases back and forth for years saying, hey, what do you think about this one? What do you think about this one? And if they agree, if they call this an easy call, three plus three versus three plus four, their agreement across the group of them is pretty good. It's like in the 70, 70 to 80% range. But the minute one of them calls it hard to say, what do you think about this one? I'm really not sure. Is this a three, three or a three, four? Their mm -hmm. agreement falls to 20 to 30%. Okay. And this is not because they're not good at their jobs. It's because it's really, really hard. They're talking about in some cases, like four glands that they're trying to decide, is this a, a pattern four or not? And ultimately they develop styles just like surgeons do. And what, you know, one pathologist will always call a grade group one. Another one will always call a grade group two. So here, when they're not sure, they do show it to each other within the group at UCSF. But, you know, if somebody wants to have it sent to Hopkins for another opinion, I mean, nobody's ever going to tell you no. Um, but, you know, where, where there's disagreement across academic centers, there's often no clear right answer. And that's where genomics may actually be quite, quite helpful because it's, it's a, a different perspective on the biology. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.